Hello and welcome back to season two of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In the first 50 episodes, I gave you an interfusion of narrations directly from my book and the occasional conversations with Pete Wood. I hope you enjoyed them despite my amateur dramatics voiceover. In this new series, I aim to bring you new conversations from fascinating people around the world, people who have a connection with Zimbabwe, albeit at times rather tenuous. I hope you find them informative, interesting, and above all, entertaining. Hello again. My guest speaker today is Louisa Trieger. Louisa was a classical violinist until she turned her hand to literature. Her debut novel, The Lodger, was widely acclaimed, and she followed it up with The Dragon Lady, based on the life of Lady Virginia Courtauld, no stranger to Zimbabweans who grew up in the Eastern Highlands. The book's title comes from a nickname referencing the snake tattoo that wound up one of Lady Courtauld's legs. Louisa Trigger, welcome to Conversations with Peter Wood. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, as mentioned, The Dragon Lady wasn't your first book. That was The Lodger. Perhaps we can get to that and your new book in a minute. But first, I'd like to talk about The Dragon Lady. It's based on the life of Lady Virginia or Ginny Courtauld. Can you tell us about this fascinating woman and what drew you to write about her? Well, Virginia or Ginny Courtauld was beautiful and rebellious, and she had a scandalous past and the tattoo of a snake, which you just mentioned, running the length of one leg. After a brief marriage to an Italian count, she wed Stephen Courtauld, a war hero mountaineer, orchid collector and heir to a textile fortune. I think what drew me to her was that she was such a, a rule breaker. And this was in an era when women were supposed to be, you know, virtuous and submissive. But Ginny was, you know, full of life and broke all the rules. And of course it was that tattoo that drew me to her. I've seen photos of it and I promise you it would stop traffic now. So what it must have seemed like in, you know, the 1920s, goodness knows. I mean, you can imagine, you know, as you say, in the 1920s, getting a snake tattoo up your leg. Getting a snake tattoo, as you said, even now, that size up your leg would, yeah. as you say, yeah. stop traffic. Yes. Uh, I mean, what a rebel. Exactly. And, and um, rumour had it that, you know, it went all the way up her leg and only her husband's knew where it ended. <laughs> <laughs> she, was, she was known as um, a real rule breaker. Um, she was also known to dress up as a man, apparently, and go racing cars round the tracks at Brooklands. In That's a right. You know, in a way, she reminds me, well, I think she was more rebellious than the Lady Mary and Downton Abbey. Yes, but very similar. And I, I think Ginny was also very exotic. You know, she was the daughter of an Italian shipping merchant. 
and a Romanian peasant, and she claimed to be a descendant of Vlad the Impaler, who was allegedly uh, the source for Bram Stoker's Dracula. So she was like Lady Mary, but with this incredibly sort of exotic background, which was also part of her fascination. So your book uh, begins with her life in Italy to a very unhappy marriage, or perhaps it wasn't so much the marriage, it was the family she married into, and then her marriage to the Courtaulds in England, and then finally to her home, La Rochelle, in the Eastern Highlands of Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia. Um, it's quite a strange choice of country for them to go and live in, by all accounts, because at the time, all the aristocracy were moving to, to the White Highlands of Kenya, there was a joke that uh, the, the officers used to go to Kenya and the sergeants used to come to Rhodesia. <laughs> well, the Courtaults were deeply non-conformist. They never did what was expected of them. And I think they wanted to leave Europe, partly because Ginny was too scandalous to ever be really accepted by English society. And I think also after the Second World War, you know, when there was so much destruction and waste, particularly on the, on the European continent, they wanted a fresh start and they wanted somewhere that they felt was close to nature and uncreated. And they were very attracted by the climate. Uh, Ginny loved hot weather. Stephen didn't like weather that was too hot. So the Eastern Highlands of Rhodesia seemed to offer the perfect solution. And then there was the wonderfully fertile soil. Uh, Stephen was a keen botanist and horticulturalist. And as you know, you can grow anything in that soil. The irony of it was they went there and found out that Rhodesia had its own set of problems. Oh, absolutely. Um, and also, I think he was slightly shell-shocked, wasn't he, from the war? He had PTSD, I suppose. So, and she was definitely the strong force in the relationship. Uh, yeah, well, it was a marriage of opposites. Because, yes, you're quite right. I think he did have PTSD. And she was such a life force, really. I think she brought him to life after the horrors of the war. Uh, but Louisa, she, she met Stephen in around 1919 in Italy. Um, yes. And it kind of was love at first sight, wasn't it? Yes. And, and he was the youngest brother of Samuel, who is the founder of the Courtauld Institute of Art at Somerset House, um, which has the greatest collection of Impressionists in the world. Uh, yes, that's right. So the brothers were heirs to a textile fortune. That's how Samuel could afford those beautiful paintings. And they were both collectors. Samuel, as you said, loved Impressionist art. And they were both deeply philanthropic. And, they, you know, they thought that charity and, and public service was a duty, really. And they thought that art should be accessible to all people. So Samuel donated that magnificent collection to the British nation. And Stephen was instrumental in founding the National Gallery of Zimbabwe. And he also donated a lot of art to the National Gallery. Apparently he donated a Monet or two, which 
seem to have gone missing. I, I believe you tried to find them. So there's such a story behind that, you know, the hidden art of Zimbabwe. I did try to find them. I wasn't very successful. Um, the gallery released a limited list of works to me, including um, Rembrandt's Dürer's and a Renoir, but they, they wouldn't release the full list of works. And apparently Stephen Courtauld donated 93 works of art to the National Gallery. So that's, you know, a, a huge and very valuable donation. And of course, my worry is that, you know, maybe, maybe Mugabe helped himself to it. Gosh, I mean, one wonders because, uh, you know, they're definitely not there in the gallery anymore. Um, they they also opened up quite a few theatres. Um, I mean, they did so much work for the country, despite, in many ways, not being particularly liked by the white community there. I mean, let's face it, a tattooed, divorced foreigner accustomed to speaking her mind. I can't imagine the the, the farmers' wives of uh, Rhodesia particularly getting on with her. Well, I always think that the Courtauld's must have seemed like aliens from another planet, you know, when they landed in the middle of the Eastern Highlands and built this magnificent house, La Rochelle, and filled it with the greatest art and comforts that money could buy and you know you can imagine the farmers and their wives reaction but also the Courtaulds were very liberal and you know believed in racial equality and worked a lot to that end so I think you know the farmers felt their way of life was quite threatened by that. I mean, is it true that they had something like 12 turners in their sitting room at La Rochelle? It was their dining room, and yes. Ah, oh, I mean, how amazing. It's, it, it's interesting that despite all the wealth in the world and all the privilege in the world, they still felt they needed to escape the UK and move to Rhodesia. And even though they were deeply philanthropic, and they, they weren't particularly popular. And yet Stephen was still awarded a knighthood by the federal prime minister, Sir Roy Walensky, for his contributions to civic life. That's right, and for philanthropy. And, and, and did you just say the constitution of Robin Mugabe's ZANU-PF party was allegedly drawn up at their house? That is quite true. There were a series of secret meetings between Stephen and um, Mugabe, you know, and other nationalist leaders. Um, and, and yes, in those days, Mugabe seemed like a good guy and Stephen helped him. And that's absolutely true. When they were in England, they had Eltham Palace, which um, actually was a medieval palace, but they renovated it into an Art Deco style, which in itself must have been quite a shock to people. But they had some pretty amazing guests like um, Queen Mary and uh, the, the late Queen Mother. You know, they had some pretty amazing guests there. They, they did. Well, Elton, my favourite description of Elton Palace is Hollywood meets the Tudors. 
and it's exactly like that it's open to the public and if you are ever in the uk it's well worth a visit it's really an extraordinary place and i think um when when they built it and and started entertaining that people were very divided some people you know thought it was amazing and others thought it was rather vulgar and yes they had incredible parties stephen was a director of ealing studios which produced you know classic british comedies and he also donated to covent garden opera so that gave the courtholds access to you know actors film directors musicians and as you said royalty came came to visit so they must have had amazing parties it must have been a bit get, like uh, the great gatsby actually i wonder Absolutely. i wonder what la rochelle was like i mean a bit quieter i expect a, a bit quieter but still they had a lot of visitors both both from the uk and from salisbury La Rochelle is now run as a hotel. It's owned by the National Trust of Zimbabwe and run as a hotel. So one of my highlights of researching the book was going to stay there, um, where I slept in Virginia's bedroom, which was quite amazing. It made me very feel very close to her living, breathing presence. And I also discovered a ghost on the property. Oh, tell us about this. Well, as I was exploring the grounds, I literally stumbled on a child's grave, very small and unmarked. And the only decoration was a porcelain, a, a, a posy of flowers made out of porcelain. So, you know, I'd, I'd never seen anything like it. And on about page two of the dragon lady uh, one of the narrators who's a young girl called Catherine stumbles on this grave and it happens to her exactly how it happened to me and there's a very sort of eerie sad atmosphere hanging around this grave and when I asked the staff of the hotel about it a couple of them said they'd actually sighted a young girl they all firmly believed the property was haunted um, but by her, she, apparently she was the daughter of a previous owner and she had, you know, met a, met a tragic end. She'd had an accident and all the staff used to vie with themselves not to be the last one to look up the property at night. And I must say, I didn't sleep, I didn't sleep through one single night I was there. I kept waking up and, you know, expecting her to appear through the curtains. And she didn't, but she made her way into my book. I mean, how, uh, what a pleasure to be able to stay in a place um, that was owned by a, a person you're actually writing about. It must have been incredibly exciting. Tell us about La Rochelle. What, was, what were the gardens like and what's the architecture like? Well, the architecture, the design is based on um, a chateau, a French chateau that belonged to Stephen's ancestors. Uh, it was meant to be a, a twin tower building, like a long, low building with two towers. But apparently the Courtauld's only got planning permission for one tower. So it's got one tall tower. It's a long, low, white building. And, you know, it, it, although the treasures are stripped out, 
it's pretty well as it was when the Courtaulds were in residence. So that, that is incredible. And the gardens are famous and absolutely beautiful. They're like Zimbabwe's equivalent to Kirstenbosch, the famous South African botanical gardens. It was Stephen's boast that a tree from every country in the world grew in that garden. Uh, he used to pour over catalogues and order seeds and seedlings. And I mean, it's incredible. And it's been restored and it's beautifully maintained. So, you know, anyone who is in that part of the world, that's well worth a visit as well. I mean, Louisa, I love people who have these big dreams. Of course, it helps having the money, but still, you know, these people who came out to this new colony and were prepared to put everything into it. And he actually died in Zimbabwe, didn't he? He did, yes. And after his death, she came back to the UK to be cared for by family. But I agree with you that they were visionaries. Uh, she she also had a, pe a pet lemur, didn't she? Which she brought out from England with her and it used to pee on, on people's <laughs> legs or nip them under the table. <laughs> well, yes, you know, Virginia didn't have children and this lemur really was her surrogate child. Yes, but he was he was very temperamental and badly behaved and, and he used to nip guests he didn't like under the dining table. When you when you went to La Rochelle, did you meet any old people who knew them or worked with them or anything? Are there any people still around? There are, but they're a dwindling number. I met an incredible um, naturalist called Daryl Plowies, who used to visit La Rochelle and advise the Courtauld's about their garden. So it was incredible talking to him. But while I was writing the book, he sadly passed away. And also the oldest gardener on the property was the Courtauld's gardener. He was a young boy when, you know, when they arrived. So it was amazing talking to people who knew them. And I'm for, oh, so just, just to, to develop that, I also met Stephen's cousin, George Courtauld in the UK. And he also shared his recollections of the Courtaulds with me. He said that when he was a boy, he used to beg Ginny to show him her party trick. He'd say to her, make your snake dance, Aunt Ginny, make your snake dance. And she would flex the muscles on her leg and the creature would sort of wriggle on her leg. And that's such a vivid and unforgettable image. So talking to all these people was very helpful in bringing the Courtauld's to life. Do you know, um, talking about meeting the family, so the, the book, The Dragon Lady, is actually historical fiction. How, how difficult is it writing historical fiction? After all, you need to be close enough to the truth to be believable. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, do you get any opposition from the Courtauld family? No, the Courtaulds were absolutely wonderful. None of the subjects of my books have children. And I think, um, you know, that gives me a certain freedom. I think I might be more inhibited to write about them if there were direct descendants. 
I look at the historical information as a skeleton on which to hang my story. And fiction gives me license to imagine myself into the character's private thoughts and to invent conversations and details which animate their conflicts and draw out themes that interest me. But at the same time, I try to stay as true to their personalities as I can. So in other words, the outline of the plot is already there. And within that framework, I create my own image of real people. And having said that, you know, The Dragon Lady is marketed and sold as a novel. It, it doesn't try and pretend to be a biography. It, it, it feels like a bio biography when you read it. I mean, you, you really believe, and no reason not to believe everything that you've said, except I suppose Catherine uh, is a, a work of fiction, um, The Little Girl. And was there actually ever a shooting or was that also fiction? That was fiction. And I explained in my afterword that for the, for the Rhodesian section of the book, there was less biographical information available. And so I felt more licensed to imagine. I know that there was some kind of threat against um, the courtauld, some kind of danger because of their liberal views but I couldn't get to the bottom of what it was. And so I invented that. And, and your work in general always champions women and, and feminism, uh, very much like Doris Lessing, I feel. Well, Doris Lessing is one of my favorite, favorite writers and was a huge influence on me. So thank you for the comparison. I'm you know, very flattered and I'll take it gladly. I stumble on the subjects of my books by accident, but the more I write, the more it seems that a pattern's emerging. I'm drawn to strong women who didn't conform and who struggle to find their place in the world. So, Louisa, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic book. I, I loved reading it. My family have loved reading it. Um, I think it's doing the rounds around uh, Harari at the moment. I'm told you've got yourself a little dragon tattoo. Yes, yes. So I'm not as brave as Virginia. Mine is only a little one. And also at my age, you have to think about, you know, what's going to wrinkle. And I, <laughs> a big wrinkly tattoo definitely wouldn't be a, a good look. So I, I have a small, well, it's a little snake like Virginia, and it's based on the book cover's design. And it's just above my right ankle and and I love it I don't regret it at all it's sort of my tribute to her and it becomes a talking point let's <laughs> let's discuss your first book The Lodger you obviously again as I said like to play with the relationship between real people and fiction and this book is no different can you tell us about the H.G. Wells connection and your protagonist of course. Well, Dorothy Richardson was a British modernist writer who lived in 20, early 20th century London. And she was actually as much of a rule breaker as Virginia Courtauld, both in the way she wrote and in the way she lived her life. She smashed just about every boundary and, and taboo. She wrote Stream of Consciousness before anyone else in England, before Virginia Woolf or um, James Joyce. 
And she was also a rule breaker in the way she lived her life. Um, she earned her living at, first as a dental assistant and, and then as a writer. So, you know, she, she wasn't kind of part of that patriarchal family structure. She had an affair with H.G. Wells, who was the husband of her oldest school friend. And she also discovered that she was um, bisexual in, in an era when homosexuality was illegal. So she, she was a rule breaker in, in every possible way. And my um, novel covers the period of her affair with H.G. Wells and her sexual awakening and how she became a writer. So I guess it's really a novel about awakenings. How it sounds absolutely delicious. Now, now you live in London with with your three kids, don't you? But I, I if do. if that hasn't kept you busy during lockdown, you've also used the time to start a third book. Can you tell us about that? That's right. Well, my third book continues my theme of women who live by their own rules. It's about Nellie Bly, who was America's first female investigative journalist. And she um, faked insanity convincingly enough to get locked up in an asylum off the coast of New York. And when she came out, she exposed the terrible conditions. And bear in mind that at the end of the 19th century, women were supposed to be, you know, virtuous and good and not draw attention to themselves. So she must have been such an extraordinary woman to pull off such a feat. And her reporting brought her fame and led to more money um, being given to the care of the mentally ill. And in fact, I, I finished that novel while in lockdown when we were, everybody was feeling, you know, locked in and slightly mad. And so it was perfect writing conditions really to, for a novel set in an asylum. I reckon we're going to find a lot of books coming out since uh, lockdown because, you know, what a perfect time for writers to buckle down. And you've got no excuse, really, have you? <laughs> that's, that's very true. Although I must say, I think the anxiety of lockdown was a real sap to productivity. You know, on the one hand, you have, have all this time, but also all the worry for, you know, friends and family and so it, it, it was a mixed time. And, and Louisa, so remind me again, what was the name of your, what's the name of your third book? Does it have a working title? The working title is Mad Woman, but I have a feeling that might change. Okay. Okay. It's, but if people want to find out more about your work, they can go to louisatrieger.com. Am I correct? I mean, I could talk for another half an hour about the courtholds and impressionists and, you know, doing your research and Elton Palace, but unfortunately we are kind of out of time here. Um, you know, this has been a long-awaited honor to speak to you, I must say. Oh, so Peter, thank you. The pleasure was mine. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you so much for joining me on Conversations with Peter Wood. All the best to you. Bye. Bye. Isn't it incredible the mystery surrounding La Rochelle and the Courtaulds? Fact is often stranger than fiction, and Louisa Trieger has found that extraordinary balance between the two. 
I thoroughly urge you to read The Dragon Lady. And as a reminder, you can find out everything about Louisa on www.louisatrieger.com. That's L-O-U-I-S-A-T-R-E-G-E-R.com. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. Goodbye.